Welcome to the Servant Leadership Online Training Summit, 10 Days to Better Relationships and Results, brought to you by Ken Blanchard, Barrett Kohler Publishers, and Conscious Marketer. Learn more at ServantLeadershipSummit.com. My friend Tommy Spaulding has made a career out of teaching others how to build deep, authentic relationships that will change their organizations and their lives. Tommy's lifetime of leadership includes being CEO and president of Upward with People and and founding the Spalding Leadership Institute, which works with school-age students. His books, The Heart-Led Leader and It's Not Just Who You Know, continue his theme of loving leadership. Tommy is the best. Enjoy. I am really excited to introduce you all to my friend Tommy Spalding. I first met him when he was the president and CEO of Up With People. When I heard him speak, I said, wow, you're unbelievable. Your message has got to get out there for everybody. And Tommy's always been interested in building authentic, caring relationships that make a difference in organizations and the lives of people that are part of those organizations. And uh, so I just love his heart, uh, not only for authentic relationships, but for, for leadership. And his book, It's Not Just Who You Know, is all about authentic relationships. And then his recent book that I just love is The Heart-Led Leader. And uh, so, Tommy, I tell you, I'm excited to, to be with you on this, uh, this whole venture. Uh, my, my honor, uh, Ken. Well, good. I was going to start off, Tom, by asking you, uh, why do you think servant leadership is needed more today around the world than ever before? Yeah. Well, I think um, I think servant leadership is 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 needed today more than ever, and I think we need a new leadership philosophy. And we've been uh, running organizations and companies and churches and temples and nonprofits with a with a a different type of leadership style, which is more about uh, the leader. And um, I think organizations that have leader leaders in place that that put others first are the ones that are more successful. And I think people are finally figuring that out. And um, it's, it's really beautiful to see um, organizations thrive, um, you know, using this heart-led leadership philosophy. What organizations do you like to talk about as good models of, of heart-led leadership and servant leadership? Yeah. Well, I wrote about my good friend T. Green in uh, Greenway Medical and uh, my friend Walt Rockovich that was the CEO of Prologix and, our friend Cheryl that just turned around Popeyes. There's so many, um, so many stories of, of leaders that are, you know, running organizations, you know, with love uh, and, and they're having great results because of it. And their, their love isn't about self-love. It's really realizing as you and I know the best organizations think that their people are their number yeah. one customer. Isn't that true? Sure. You know, if, if you, if you told people you're going to talk about love, in the workplace 10 years ago, they would have thought you were crazy. I mean, you, you wrote books about love. And I remember when I went to Random House, our, our publisher, and I said, I wanted to write a book about love. Uh, they said I was crazy. Uh, but the, the word love is not used as in business uh, saying, I love you. It, it's shown. It's, it's shown through your actions. And that's love in the workplace. Yes. I really feel that the next great you know, evangelist movement and religion the great movement in leadership is going to be de- demonstration, not proclamation. You know, rather than talking about it, as you're saying, Tommy, you got to do something about it. 
Yeah. You know, Ken, I'd, I'd love to share this quick story. My, 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 one of my mentors uh, that's in heaven is, is my grandfather. And he wasn't a famous author like you. Um, he, he, he wasn't a politician or a CEO. He, he was a hairdresser. Came over from Italy and raised four daughters. And, and, he, and he had a little a hairdresser studio in White Plains, New York, called Helen and Anthony's Hairdresser Studio. And for 45 years, my grandparents had this little hairdresser studio where my grandmother would wash the hair and my grandfather would cut and style the hair. And above that little hairdresser studio, they had a two-bedroom home that they raised four daughters in, one of them being my mother. They were married for 57 years and they were just best friends. And when I was a little boy, I always see them kissing and holding hands and dancing in the kitchen. They, they really had a, they had a relationship like you and Margie. They really loved each other. And when my grandparents were married for 55 years, they, my grandmother had a stroke and um, a massive stroke and put her in the nursing home the rest of her life. And uh, my grandfather would go to the nursing home every day at seven o'clock when the doors open at seven, he'd race to Helen's room and throw his arms around her. And, you know, all the occupational therapists and physical therapists and doctors gave up. My grandmother said the stroke was so severe that she would never walk or, or, or talk again. But my grandfather became her doctor and physical therapist and he would go there every morning and massage her legs and work on her speech. And he, she eventually walked again and, and talked. Um, it was a real beautiful love story. And, and it was so cool as the general manager of this nursing home witnessed my grandfather's commitment to my grandmother. He actually gave my grandfather a, a key uh, to the nursing home. And so he, he would let himself in and out of the nursing home. I get choked up even talking about it. This, General manager giving my grandfather the key, the only non-employee to have a key to let himself in and out to be with his wife. Anyway, when, when he died, um, he died of a brain tumor. Um, we hired hospice we, and, and, and all his daughters and grandkids and nieces and nephews were all by his bedside. And we knew that he was passing and going to heaven. And we we're all going around the table uh, in the bedroom telling Anthony how much we loved him. I mean, Papa, we called him. Papa, we love you. Anthony, we love you. Grandpa, Dad, we love you. And with his last breath, he looks at us and he says uh, words that changed my life. He said, um, stop telling me you love me. You know, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. <laughs> and he closed his eyes and went to heaven. And, oh, wow. and for years, I, I, I wondered, what, what the hell did he mean by that? You know, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. And I had no idea that 25 years later, I'd write a book on leadership. And that's exactly what, it, what, what, it's, what leadership's all about. It's about love. And don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. And that's servant leadership. Yes. And that's the heart-led leader, really, that leads right from their heart. Sure. Uh, and uh, it's great when you have examples uh, uh, like that uh, that, uh, that just make a, a real difference in, in your life. Uh, Tommy, why don't you tell us a little bit about it's not just uh, who you know, because I know that's one of your favorites in about authentic leadership. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, your first book is always your baby. And um, that was my first book that came out about 10 years ago. And um, it's really about relationships. And it's really about deep, meaningful, authentic relationships. And I, I think relationships are everything in life. They're everything in business. They're everything in, 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 in organizations. And we live in a very transactional world. Uh, what you can do for me. Uh, if I help you, you have to help me. And I just don't believe in that. I believe in relationships that are pure out of love and serving others and wanting nothing in return. And when you build these deep, meaningful relationships, they'll change 
your life and they'll change your organization. And you know, the greatest sales teams, the greatest organizations with results have a philosophy that they serve their customers and their clients with this, this kind of type of authentic relationship. And so the book, the, that I wrote really talks about the five levels of relationships and the first level, every, every relationship we have lives on five levels. And I wrote a book about why we should move our relationships from level one, which are transactional yeah. to, to level five. And it goes through the different levels of relationships. And so the first level is, you know, transactional. We have them every day, you know, the bank teller, the, the, the cab driver, the Uber driver, the, 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 the postal service person. And you say hello and they say hi and they, you say, how are you? And you don't mean, how are you? Because they say, I'm fine. And they don't mean I'm fine. It's just transactional, you know? Um, and then the second level of relationship is I call NSW relationships. And NSW stands for new sports weather. It's, it's small talk. You know, how, how the Denver Broncos do and how the Yankees do and how's, how's pl- politics in your town? You know, how's the weather? It's, it's small talk. And, and we need small talk to start a relationship. But there's so many people that live on the second floor and have NSW relationships with all their customers and clients and employees and family members. And so you have to move to a third floor where you get a little bit more vulnerable. You share about yourself and you ask meaningful questions and that are vulnerable. And, and when you have a fourth floor relationship, you, you, you really um, start thinking about the person of what can I learn about them to help serve them, uh, not just win their business, but win their hearts. Um, how could I really... Uh, get to know their family, their 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 challenges, their ma- their marriage. You know, I'm not just trying to sell them a widget. I, I, I'm trying to learn about how I can help serve them. And then you move to a fifth floor relationship. I call that the penthouse, Ken, and, and that's when you have pure authenticity, vulnerability, humility. You want nothing in return except a lifelong customer, a lifelong friendship, and um, and and you serve them with the most open, loving, genuine heart possible. And when you build relationships and you build companies with those types of relationships, um, I wrote a, a whole chapter of the book called ROR. That st- stands for return on relationships. And companies in America and across the world are all fixated on ROI. Return on investment is, is, yeah. is everything. I mean, that's what it is. And yeah. I challenge the world saying it's not about ROI. It's, it's really about ROR, return on relationships. If you build a company, an organization, a church, a temple, a nonprofit where people are first and you have deep, meaningful relationships with your donors, your shareholders, your board members, your employees, your, your customers, your clients, your, your neighbors, your, your, the people that you serve. If you build real relationships with them that are meaningful and caring and genuine, you'll have unbelievable results. And that's really the essence of the, of the first book. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Tommy, I, I love John Ortberg's yeah. book. At the end okay. of the game, it all goes back in the box, you know. And yeah. It's a story about he and his grandmother when he was young, and she was a you know, tremendous Monopoly player. And when he played with her, she always ended up with everything. She had Broadway, places, nothing. And, and uh, she would smile, and she said, John, someday you're going to wor- learn how to play the game. And so one summer, when he was 12, 15, a kid moved next door, incredible Monopoly player. And uh, he practiced every day because he knew his grandmother was coming in September. When she did, he ran in the house, gave her a hug and a kiss. How about a Monopoly game? And her eyes lit up. She said, let's go, John. What he was ready for this time. And he came out of the shoot. And he just wiped his grandmother out. <laughs> and uh, uh, he said it was the greatest day of his life. And his grandmother said, now, John, that you know how to play the game. Let me teach you a lesson about life. And she said, what's that? 
She said, it all goes back in the box. So what? She said, everything you bought, everything you accumulated, all goes back in the box. The only thing you get at the end of life is, is your relationships, who you love and who loves you. The rest goes back in the box. And I, yeah. I, it's been, to me, such a powerful thing. And, yeah. you know, I, I just finished reading that three days before our house burned to the ground, uh, you know, in, in 2007. And, and that was just gave me such a different perspective because nobody got hurt and we lost a lot of stuff yeah. and all that kind of thing. But I, I just think that uh, you're so on to it with, uh, with relationships. Uh, being yeah. So. yeah. You know, we, we, we said we're, we're a society that sends Christmas cards, you know, and I, I have to admit, I have a Christmas card list and I think we got 400 names on our list and we probably get a thousand cards and, you know, we always want to get on people's Christmas cards list. And I, I said in my book, the goal isn't to get on someone's Christmas card list. The goal is to get invited to someone's Christmas dinner. And that's really what we want to build is these really authentic relationships where you want to have um, these people over your home and to share a holiday. Yeah. So, so you really get to, to be with them. I yeah. love Colleen Barrett uh, from, when she was president of Southwest, she told me that uh, people admire your skills, but they love your vulnerability, which yeah. is your authenticity and to realize that you don't know everything and you can utilize the people around you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really exciting. With, uh, with the heart-led leader, you, you went from relationships to relationships in a, in a different kind of way. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, the reason why I wanted to write The Heart-Led Leader is um, I, 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 was, I was obsessed with servant leadership and read so many great books. And there's actually thousands of them. I mean, Jesus was our first role model in servant leadership. Uh, so you read the Bible, you learn about servant leadership. But one of the things that I noticed, Ken, is that all these books on servant leadership never really linked servant leadership with results. It was always a good feeling. You know, servant leadership is good for morale. It's good for uh, employee retention, customer retention. It's good for culture. But does it really affect the, the bottom line results of, of organizations and, and love in the workplace? This, this love and results, do they work together? Are they hand in hand? And that was the argument that I tried to um, you know, persuade in the, in the book. So I did basically 18 case studies of organizations that brought love, that brought servant leadership, that brought heart-led leadership into their organizations and the uh, unfounded, unprecedented results that happened in these schools, in these prisons, in these corporate Fortune 500 companies, uh, because leaders led from their heart, um, their results were outstanding. And so um, I, it was, it's basically servant leadership with, with a results-minded um, um, foundation. Yes, yeah, so I say to people, the only way I know to get great results and great human satisfaction is with servant leadership. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really true. Could you share with us a couple of those cases of, you know, what from some, some different types of organizations? Sure. What, what sure. Um, one of my favorite servant leaders of all time is a guy named Walt Rakovich and he was the CEO of ProLogics and ProLogics is, is, is a, as a um, holding company that owns warehouse space, you know, throughout the, throughout the world. They're you know, S&P 500 company, and they were a $20 billion company. And Walt spent his career, um, you know, in the whole organization, you know, as marketing director and, and um, CFO and became president and chief operating officer. And 
and built, you know, a company with, you know, thousands of employees worldwide and $20 billion market cap. And um, he felt the CEO years ago, about six or seven years ago, uh, was, a, was a, you know, a narcissist. You know, he was, you know, he, there's two types of leaders. There's self-serving leaders and, and servant leaders. And, and right. he was a self-serving leader. And um, Walt knew that the company was heading the wrong direction. So he, he resigned. And at that time, uh, the stock was about um, $60 a share. And uh, really within a week, um, the stock dropped from $60 a share to $2.50 a share, a 95% stock drop. Matter of fact, in the history of Wall Street, it's one of the, 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 the plum, most plummeted stock in the history, a 95% stock drop. So a, a $20 billion market cap company was worth $550 million by the end of the week. And obviously, the board fired the CEO, and they were really uh, worried because they had, I think, almost 60,000 employees. And so they hired Walt Rakovich back to become the CEO and president. And in four years, he turned around the company, uh, which one of the greatest corporate turnarounds in history, certainly in the, in the real estate cap market. And it's now a $25 billion market cap company. And when I interviewed uh, Walt, he's my neighbor. He lives just a few you know, blocks down. How did you do it? He said, with love. I never had to say the word. I just had to show the word. And I had to serve others. I mean, he, it was all about serving leadership, all about transparency. Where the first CEO kept all the financials, all the information to themselves. Walt said, here's our information. Here's our debt. Here's our, our, our financials. Here it is. I don't have all the answers. Help me find them. He went to all these creditors you know, that, that they owed money to and said, I don't have all the answers, but I want to earn your trust. I want to earn your respect. And we're going to renegotiate our debt. And we're going to get through this together. And he just orchestrated it. such an incredible turnaround through transparency, through love, through honesty. Uh, it's, he's, he's quite a human being. He's now chairman of Penn State University and helping that university turn around uh, yeah. from that whole you know, Sandusky uh, tragedy. So you know, he's an alumnus there and cares deeply about the university. So he is one of the greatest corporate and philanthropic and nonprofit and now collegiate uh, you know, servant leaders. Yeah, I'm anxious to see uh, how he does with the university, because those are very interesting. You know, I've spent 10 years as a college professor, and uh, uh, when I talk to my presidents and chairman of, of universities, I say, boy, you got a tough job compared to uh, somebody in, in corporate America, because there's three major groups in universities, all who think they can do your job better than you, <laughs> they don't see themselves part of the line. Yeah. The faculty... The alumni yeah. and the students, you know, yeah, and uh, uh, so it's a, it's a whole different game. So it'd be really interesting to see how he can can turn that uh, that yeah. that around because it's exciting. Yeah. You know, Ken, if you know universities are tough, I think the toughest uh, organization uh, to lead are prisons. And yeah. and you know the story I wrote about. I closed my book with Burl Kane yeah. with and, and Angola, Louisiana State Penitentiary. And I, I chose to close my book about that is because I wanted to prove to the reader, to the world, that if you can turn around a prison, I mean, you could turn around any organization. And, you know, I'm not sure if you want to tell that story, Ken, about Angola, but it, it's truly probably the most inspiring story I've ever heard. Yeah, well, you know, when he took over, as you well know, he said to the prisoners, I'm going to treat you just as well as you permit me to, to you know. And yeah. uh, it was just... He started, I think, four divinity schools in the prison. Yeah. And now they're sending pastors from their prison around. And, yeah. And uh, it's just uh, amazing. And uh, 
the goal, which fascinated me, was the goal was that these people's kids would not end up in prison because you've seen the, yeah. the 70 to 80 percent of the kids of people in jail end up in right. jail themselves. And, and they would have these quarterly uh, Saturday gatherings where all the kids would come in. Yeah. The job of the prisoners to teach the kids what they were learning. Yeah. And, you know, they, you know, lead like Jesus has been in there and it's just, uh, but it's just uh, amazing. Uh, what other aspects of that was exciting for you to see? Yeah. It's just the result, like uh, 15 years ago, uh, actually not 16 years ago, Angola was the top bloodiest, most dangerous prison in North America. They had 6,800 inmates, 98% life without parole and death, death row. And, and when he took over, it was the bloodiest, deadliest. They yeah. called it the Alcatraz of the South. And now 16 years later, Angola is one of the safest prisons in the country. And yeah. uh, I, I just love how he built respect and dignity with the men and women there. I flew down there, Ken, because uh, I wanted to interview him. I spent three days at Angola, went to death row, walked around and met met prisoners and I, I i just couldn't believe what i saw the 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 love the respect at a at a federal penitentiary that was once the most dangerous prison in the world mm-hmm. but he's turned around um it, and, and it just shows ken how one person what one leader can say i want to change the culture of my organization mm-hmm. i want to take the bloodiest dangerous uh prison more rapes more capital crimes more murders in this prison and i want to make it the safest prison and he does it in 15 years by by love by, by servant leadership yeah it's a it's amazing margie and i just recently got to see the play hamilton you know which is yeah. unbelievable the creativity and and the uh, energy and all and of course you know i leave a morning message for everybody in our company i'm the chief spiritual officer and my morning message the next day was you know, wouldn't it be unbelievable if we took that creativity and used it to get along with people around the world? And, and you know, Angola is an example of using that love and that creativity to create a great human organization because we can really do it as yeah. human beings if we would just focus on that. But, you know, you got to get your ego out of the way, don't you? Sure. It wasn't about him. It was about how he could impact these prisoners and their kids and and all that's what's yeah. just wonderful to see you know you said something ken that i think that the the listeners on this show need to really hear is that ego is really everything because we all have one i mean when you hear someone say oh i don't have an ego that that's not true every human being has an ego but the great leaders that that we know that we write about that we study that we learn from they they have their ego at check they have this humble humble heart uh, humility to me is, um, people always ask me, what's the most important quality a leader needs to have? There's so many of them. But for me, the humility piece is is really big because um, people don't want to follow someone that's full of themselves or arrogant or cocky. And a lot of times people, they misunderstand humility with, with a lack of confidence. And that's this false. I mean, people with deep confidence, I mean, confidence where they think they're the best at their game can, can also be deeply humble. Um, and there's a direct correlation with success and arrogance. I mean, it, there's a line curve. The more success you have, the more arrogant you become. It's just humankind. Yeah. And, and the great leaders that I've met and studied, um, including yourself, Ken, is the more success that you have, the more humble you become. Mm-hmm. When I was in a business school in Australia, 
I spent a, a, a couple of weeks in New Zealand and I called my mentor up and said, Hey, I'm going to New Zealand. Do you know anyone I should reach out to? And Oh, you need to meet my friend, Rod Dixon. He's the greatest Olympian of all time in New Zealand. Um, he, he's been in six Olympic games, the last white guy to win the New York city marathon back in 1980 before the Kenyans and the Ethiopians took over the sport. And he's been in six Olympic games and, you know, won Olympic medals. He's, he's decorated and, and, and revered in New Zealand. His name is Rod Dixon and you should reach out to him. So I, I reached out to him and he invited me to spend a few days at his home. We went to his ranch and met his wife and his kids and we had fish and chips. We went for a jog and I really got to know this man and he was really down to earth and humble and genuine. And I went to his office. I went to his farm. I, went, I slept at his home. And after three days with him, he drove, he drives me to the train station. And this is before I was an author. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about writing books. And at 35 years old, he drives me to the airport or to the train station. And I, I say to him, hey, Rod, I, I just have one question for you. I just spent the last three days in your house. You're the greatest Olympian in, from New Zealand's history. Um, I didn't see one picture of you in your home or your office of you crossing the finish line. Or I didn't see any of your Olympic medals, um, you know, showcased. Uh, you know, in your home, uh, even above your fireplace or in the refrigerator or, or any, uh, anywhere. And you didn't talk about winning the New York City Marathon. I mean, you didn't talk about any of this. And so where are all your medals and where are all your pictures? And why don't you talk about all this? I, I was like really dumbfounded. I said, sir, if I won the New York City Marathon or a gold medal, it'd be above my fireplace. You know, it'd be like on my refrigerator. On forehead. <laughs> on my forehead. I'd have Christmas cards with my medal. And here's what he said. Oh, Tommy. All that crap is in a shoebox collecting dust in the attic because I'm not going to be judged on my medals and my awards. I'm going to be judged on the people that I love and serve. And he drops me off at the train station and drives away. And the 30 something year old kid in business school gets hit with that. That's when I really, really understood what humility is all about. And you know, you and I would travel the world. We visit people's offices. What's in people's offices? Egos, their, their Harvard degrees, their pictures with Obama or Bush and, or Peyton Manning and their, their awards and their certificates. And, you know, millennials don't give a, a hoot about that stuff. When they walk in their office, they want to see a picture of your wife, your husband, your kids, what you love, the philanthropic things you're involved in. And they want to know your heart. They don't care about your accomplishments and all that stuff. All that crap needs to be in a shoebox, collecting yeah. dust in an attic. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I learned that lesson well when I worked with Norman Vincent Peale on our book uh, when he was 86 years old. And, and I remember a wonderful line in the book is that people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. <laughs> I love that. It's not that they don't have any confidence. It's just that it's not that important to, to them because yeah. they think of other people uh, first. And boy, that's the, that's the bottom line. Uh, in terms of, of servant leadership. And what's so interesting that people don't understand is that when you're like that, it ends up to be win, 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 win. You know, I mean, everybody wins, right. including you and your humble uh, way. You know, it's just uh, just wonderful. That's why I love, right. you know, Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett from Southwest, you know what I mean? Because they, it wasn't about them. It was about their people and, serving their customers and yeah. so it's just uh, just great to to see that it's just the the, the power of this isn't it uh tommy that really yeah. gets to you when you really think about it yeah yeah 
So, uh, but uh, well, is there any uh, anything you're working on now that uh, is exciting to you? That's uh, the Tommy Spaulding of the future that we'll be coming on. <laughs> well, I just got back from Europe. I spent two weeks over there running a youth leadership program. And even though I write business books and talk to companies, my real heart is, is, is youth. Um, you know, I was a CEO of Up With People and spent 20 years of my career working with youth. And I'm really, I'm really um, committed to that, Ken, because um, when you teach a high school kid uh, servant leadership, it, it, it could change their life. Because most high school kids across the country, uh, let alone across the world, don't understand that the four most important words of leadership are, it's not about you. Right. Those, are, those are the four most important words. I always say, you know, go buy the book, The Purpose Driven Life, right? Go buy that book. Mm -hmm. It's a great book. Read it. But guess what? You don't, have, you don't have to read the whole book. I'll make it easy for you. Just open the book up, Purpose Driven Life, and read the first four words of the book, chapter one, and then shut the book and you don't have to read it again, the rest of it. And they think I'm crazy. And they open the book and the first four words are, it's not about you. And le leaders that understand that truly know how to lead. And to get a high school kid to understand that. And so we brought 32 kids to Italy and then 32 kids to Greece, a different 32 kids. And we taught them about servant leadership and how to live their life with building authentic relationships. And, um, you know, my years with Up With People can really shape my heart because I grew up upstate New York. My parents were school teachers. I'm a white Catholic kid, never really left Colorado or le left New York until I moved to Colorado. And to travel to 80 countries with up with people over 10 years and mm -hmm. to live in thousands of host families and have friends that are Muslims and Jews and Christians and atheists and followers of Jesus and, and people that don't follow Jesus and gays and straights and communists and capitalists and, and socialists and rich and poor and to live in Europe and, and Asia and, and Australia and, and to travel throughout Africa. I mean, it just shaped my heart that we're called to be on this earth to love and serve all people and, right. and and that's where um i think a lot of leaders understand it's it's leading all people to have empathy and love for all people and i'm very committed and and very blessed and and thankful for up with people for um you know really you know building a foundation of my heart when i joined them at 17 years old and 25 years later i became ceo and president so that organization really shaped my heart to, to learn to love to love all people well, you know, I was blessed with an amazing mother, uh, and she always said to me, uh, Tommy, uh, Ken, don't you act like you're better than anybody else. Don't let anybody act like they're better than you. God didn't make any people are really beautiful. And then she had this great line. She said, there's a pearl of goodness in every single human being. Yeah. Some people, you got to dig for it a little bit more, but it's there. And uh, that's my uh, my philosophy. You know, I... I like to move. You talk about your four levels. Uh, my secretary, Marjorie Allen, always when I get home, she says, okay, what cab drivers am I sending books to? You know, Because when I get in with a cab driver, I want to find out who they are and about their family, <laughs> all that kind of thing. And it's just, uh, uh, it's a lot of them are just blown away that you'd be interested uh, in them. But uh, through my mom, I just got fascinated by people. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's... Uh, what you got from your grandfather and other people, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, yeah. You know, unfortunately, we live in a world now where we're so busy. We have the internet and emails and texting and, and um, you know, social media and just the, we're so absorbed. We got work, we have families, nonprofits, we, you know, 
you know, raising kids. We get so busy, but we got to find the time to, to write handwritten letters and to, to make time to build relationships and to listen and to care. And I love that uh, saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you, you care. And my friend Frank D'Angelis, the principal of Columbine High School, taught me that. Um, the, the, the real leaders that I respect are the, t- the ones that are humble and genuine, but they take the time to, to get to know you and uh, to, to, to love your heart. You can always find bad in people. I mean, every, everyone has weaknesses and, and faults, but when you live your life trying to find good in everybody, trying to find love in everybody, and trying to serve people, um, you're, you're going to have a really successful, happy life. Just uh, great talking uh, to you. And I just think that uh, this whole concept of servant leadership in action is really about what you're talking about and what we've shared about demonstration. And, and servant leadership is love and action. And, uh, and you so believe in that. And I think it's just uh, uh, great. I want to uh, listen to you in our little time together almost every day to remind me. <laughs> about uh, the importance of, of reaching out to others. So, oh, yeah. Thank so you, Ken. Great to be with you, Tom. You're the best. Yeah. Thank love, you, son. Love to all the family. You know that. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it. You must have a good wrap-up story for you. <laughs> well, this wrap-up story, Ken, I was thinking about and I was praying about my time with you this morning. This is actually about you. Um, I actually went to high school with Walt Weiss. He was one of the greatest shortstops of our generation. He, he, he went to high school, he was four years older than I was. Um, but he went to the University of North Carolina and he got drafted by the A's, but he played for the Braves for 10, 12 years in the Rockies. And he went to the, um, you know, all-star. He was a great shortstop player. And, you know, when we were kids, you know, we used to flip cards and, you know, we loved the, the, the you know, the, uh, Re- you know, Reggie Jackson and, 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 the, and the Yankees and all that. And, you know, he loved Reggie Jackson. At the time, Reggie Jackson played for the, the Oakland A's. And, and when he uh, you know, went to the pros, um, he got drafted. And he, he actually played with Reggie Jackson uh, on the Oakland A's. And so just growing up a kid, being a Yankee fan, and he loved Reggie Jackson, loved the Yankees. And then when Reggie retired, he had his last couple of years with the Oakland A's. And, and then when Walt Weiss, you know, played for the pros his rookie year, he actually played in the same team with, with Reggie Jackson. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, being a kid that, that your childhood, you know, mentor and superstar, you're now teammates with. And, you know, I, I wanted to share that story with you, Ken, because, um, you know, I grew up reading all your books and, and, and loving you and, and the one minute manager and, you know, just following your success. And you were kind of a mentor, you know, if, if, if they had baseball cards of authors and speakers I I'd have all your baseball cards, I'd have all the Blanchard cards and, and now we're friends and we serve on a ministry together. We lead like Jesus and we're, we vacation together and our wives know each other together and we love each other. And, it's it's like being on the Oakland A's and playing with Reggie Jackson when I'm with you, Ken. And um, I just love and admire you and feel very humble that you're interviewing me about servant leadership because um, it should be me that's interviewing you about servant leadership, the way you live your life and all the success you have. And you're always giving to people. You're always um, you know, serving others. It's really all about other people. And your just personality and your love and your heart is so con- contagious and affectionate. Uh, and I just love you so much, Ken. I'm just glad that we got to spend some time together this morning. Well, I appreciate it. I, I think that 
the key is that both of us married above ourselves. So if we get uh, uppity and think we're a big deal, we got these great brides will just bring us right down to earth. Don't you think that's true? Oh, yeah. Jill and Marty, they're the best. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. You're the, you're the best. And it's just been great to be with you. God yeah. bless. Yeah, you too. Attending the Servant Leadership Online Training Summit. To own the Servant Leadership Training Kit, including 40 videos, full transcripts, and over 35 speaker bonuses at a 40% discount, click the upgrade button now. This special offer is limited and available only during the summit, so act now. Thank you.